Hey everyone, uh, welcome to, this is going to be the breakout session for fighting for the marginalized and uh, the unreached. So if that's what you signed up for, then you are in the right spot. My name is Jordan Coleman. I am the Go Now Director at Summit College. Um, thank you, Grayson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But let me just kick us off in prayer, and then Julius is going to bring a good word, and we'll have a little discussion afterwards. Father, thank you so much for this weekend. Uh, God, thank you for answered prayers. We prayed that the snow would not uh, delay us, and it did not. So I thank you for that, God, Um, so that we could gather and we can talk about how you are a God of the nations, how you love every uh, tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Um, Lord, you love every uh, person, no matter whether they make a lot of money or they are poor and impoverished. Um, Lord, you love everyone. And so, Lord, we're so thankful for that. We just pray for this session to be glorifying to you and to bless our students and help them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, um, I'm glad you're here. My name is Julius. I really wish I had time to you know, introduce myself or tell some stories about my family or something, but I don't because uh, I want to honor your time and I want to really prepare the way for this panel, which is really going to help you and then get out of the way. So that's my goal, like John the Baptist, prepare the way, get out of the way. So that's what we're going to do. Has has anybody seen Marvel's What If series? Yeah, we got some hands. Cool. So uh, I've been watching that with my son. He's only two years old, so he doesn't really know what's going on, but um, I feel like it's important to start Saturday morning cartoons early in life, teach them in the way you should go, and when he's older, he will not depart from it. So um, so we, we've been watching the What If series, and I watched the episode, What If the Avengers Had to Deal with a Zombie Apocalypse? It was really interesting. I'm personally, I'm not really a zombie apocalypse genre kind of person. I don't typically enjoy things of that genre, but this was interesting, and this is the kind of person that I am. While I was watching it, what I was thinking was, you know what's interesting about the process of becoming a zombie is the accurate depiction it is of what sin does to us. That's what I thought. Um, In the same way that as you become a zombie, you are dehumanized, sin does that to us. It dehumanizes us, and as we are... um, ravished by sin and we are corrupted by sin, the more and more we give in to sin, the less and less we care about what we do to other people. So when I was watching that, I was like, man, this is really fascinating because of what it does. And then I thought about like what Paul says in Ephesians 2 when he says, uh, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And I'm like, is there a better depiction of being dead in your sins, like you're still alive following the prince of the ruler of the air, but you're dead? Is there a better depiction of that than being a zombie? So that's what I was thinking while I was watching watching that. And in every zombie movie or in this genre, there's always this survival community, right? Like that's the way they survive is they try to keep the zombies out and they try to keep the people inside the community safe, which in a zombie apocalypse situation is a pretty good strategy, right? But what I started thinking about is I wonder if we don't approach the marginalized in a similar way. Like we try to protect ourselves inside the circle and push people. The people that tend to get pushed to the margins are those that we're trying to protect ourselves from, maybe their particular manifestation of sin or maybe just their, uh, the way they discomfort us with their particular struggles and burdens. Um, and so I just thought, man, I, I think, is this, so here's the question, is marginalization, is marginalization, is it just the inevitable and maybe even necessary kind of survival mechanism for living in a fallen world? Is that the way we're supposed to see marginalization? Or does the Bible show us kind of a better way? And, you know, full cards on the table, I think the Bible shows us a better way. So that's what I want to do with the time that I have with you, is I want to look at these kind of questions, and we're going to fly through this because, again, prepare the way get out of the way. So here are the questions. What was God's good design and what happened, right? What went wrong? So that's the first thing we're going to look at. And then what is marginalization and why does it happen? So that's the second thing we'll look at. And then how do we tend to respond to the marginalized? And then lastly, how does God respond to the marginalized? So that's where we're going. So let's jump right in. First one, what was God's good design and what went wrong. So we're going to be in Genesis for most of this. So you can, if you have a Bible um, or a phone or an iPad or whatever you use, 
Meet Me in Genesis chapter 2. And as you turn there, uh, I'll just kind of set up where we are at this point is that in the beginning, God, right? There was nothing but God and God being the master poet that he is. He kind of spoke in words, everything into existence. And then he starts like arranging his creation so that humanity can live with him in peace and flourish. And so he creates the first human being and he puts them in this ideal garden with him. And that's, that's kind of where we are. And then we get Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So here's what we see that's a part of God's good design. It's not good for man to be alone, right? And that's not just relationship with God. Certainly it's not good for us to be without God, but Adam was with God But even then, God says it's not good for him to be alone. So there's this longing for connection, social connection that has been put inside of Adam, and that is a part of God's good design. So what does God do? He makes woman. And God being the kind of master potter that he is, he forms her from Adam's side. And we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, this, and the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from the man. What's the first thing? Think about this with me. What's the first thing that Adam notices about this woman? He says, she's like me. And I think this is important because usually when we talk about men and women, we start with our uniqueness. We talk, with, we talk about our distinction usually, right? What makes us different? And it's not that we're not different, but it's just important to note that a part of good, God's good design is the starting place for men and women is not their distinction. It's their unity. Adam says, she's like me. There has been nobody, nothing. As I've been looking at these animals and naming them, there's nothing that is like me, but finally, Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's like me. So that's a part of God's good design that we start with our unity, what we share in common, not our uniqueness. But Adam doesn't ignore that she's unique, right? He'll go on to say, I'm going to call her woman. So he's recognizing she's different than me, right? I'll call her woman because she was taken from man. He sees that she's unique, but here's what's important. He's not threatened by her uniqueness. Right, He delights in it. So we read in verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh, unique and unified. That's a part of God's good design, both together. And then, right, I've skipped Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which will be very familiar to you, but let's go back and read that now. So chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So this is God's good design. They're experiencing unity with each other and with God. And here's, here's what I want you to see. They're experiencing unity with God, and they're experiencing this not only individually. Like, it's not just that they are individually created in the image of God. That's what we tend to emphasize. But that's not really the point here. The point is that male and female together are the image of God. That there is an interconnectedness, a partnership that's necessary for them to demonstrate and reflect who God is. Like, don't miss that. That's a part of his design. We need both. That we can't do it individually. That there's an interconnectedness of humanity that is a part of God's good design. So, there in the garden, uniqueness and unity existing there together. And then the last verse in chapter 2 reads, verse 25, it says, Both the man and his wife were naked, and yet they felt no shame. In other words, they're not threatened 
by their uniqueness. I'm so this is a thread that's going to flow all the way through when we start talking about marginalization. So I just need you to like have this in your head that they are unique and unified and that there is no threat to their unity even though they can see each other's uniqueness. That's really important for God's good design. Now, what happens? What goes wrong? Well, Genesis chapter 3, we don't have time to read this, but what happens is a serpent shows up and he starts whispering to Adam and Eve, you know, God's design isn't actually all that good. You know, what you really need is you need to decide for yourself what is good. And then what happens is that quite literally all hell breaks loose. (laughs) Everything that we experience in the brokenness and fallenness of humanity started right here with this seed of doubt that was casted in their minds that God's design is not good. And in fact, because God himself is not good. That is how we got to where we are right now. So what is marginalization and why does it happen? Well, the dictionary definition of marginalization is the treatment of a person or group or concept as insignificant or peripheral. So that's, that's the dictionary definition. It's the treatment of a person or group or concept as insignificant or peripheral. Here's how I'm going to define it. I think it's kind of a two-step process, and I want to define it in sort of a, a depictive way, because that's, that's how I think, and in, in kind of in pictures. So here's what marginalization is. First, it is the emphasis of uniqueness over unity. It's first when you decide to emphasize what makes you unique. That's your starting place. So I'm going to give you an example of this. Um, chapter 3, verse 7 of Genesis it reads this. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, right? Because they, they disobeyed God. They listened to the serpent. They ate the fruit that God told them not to eat from the one tree in the garden that they weren't supposed to eat from. And then it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So going from end of chapter two, they're naked and unashamed. And now they're naked and ashamed and they hide themselves from each other. So what happens? Well, when they were listening to God and in right relationship with him and with each other, they were not threatened by their uniqueness, right? Adam had said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's like me, and yet she's different than me, and I delight in that. But in chapter 3, once they fall, now your, your uniqueness actually scares me. I, I, I don't know what to do with the fact that you're different than me. And, and so I'm gonna, I need to like protect myself from you. Right, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to push you away to make sure that I'm okay. This is the first step of marginalization. It's it's the emphasis of uniqueness over unity. And then the second step is that whatever uniqueness you've decided to emphasize, be it race, gender, nationality, religion, whatever it is that you're emphasizing, then you draw a circle around yourself, and you say the people who are inside the circle are the most deserving of value, of being treated well, of love, maybe even of hearing the gospel. The people inside the circle are the ones who deserve these things. And the people outside the circle, not so much. That, that is, I think, a descriptive kind of picture of what marginalization looks like. We emphasize our uniqueness, then we draw circles around ourselves and decide that people inside the circle deserve better than the people outside of the circle. So why does marginalization happen? I want to show you just just from here. We can look in some of these verses in chapter 3, or even as the fall is happening, and we can discern at least a a few things. I'm going to give you three reasons, at least three. I think there are probably way more than this, but I'll just point out three reasons why marginalization happens. Number one, spiritual powers. I know we don't like to talk about that in the West. It's like really uncomfortable for us to think about spiritual powers, but we can't get around the fact that throughout the scriptures, it's very clear that there are spiritual influences to the way things happen in our fallen world. Verse one of chapter three is, is uh, what sets that up, right? Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said, can we just... Can we just make an agreement right now that if a serpent ever starts talking to you that you're not going to start talking back to it? Like, can we just, like, agree? All right, that's, I think we'll get somewhere if we can make that agreement together. But even as you read through the Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament, usually 
when Israel starts to marginalize, when they start to like push people to the margins, when they start to oppress other people groups, usually it's because they started worshiping other gods. That's not by accident. That's not coincidence. That is because that's what spiritual powers do. They divide. They push away. They require, in fact, they require marginalization to happen because the gods of the nations say only the strong can come and really worship us, and they're the ones who are the most blessed and the most benefited. And so you have to, you have to sacrifice and push away those who are weak. It is the influence of spiritual powers. It's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and authorities. Spiritual powers are at work. There is influence of spiritual powers in marginalization. That's one reason. The second is a a sort of scarcity mentality. Scarcity mentality. That means that there's not enough for everyone. So in order for me to get what I need, I've got to push some people out of the circle, right? Have you ever seen Titanic? I know I'm like starting to get older than college students. So um, some of the references that I use, it's like, you young people haven't actually seen. I understand that. But have you, have you seen Titanic? Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Titanic. All right, see, we're still there. I appreciate you. All right, so in Titanic, right, like this huge ship strikes a glacier and starts sinking. And so what do they do? Well, they go get lifeboats, but there's not enough of them. So what do they do? They start fighting for who's going to get in the lifeboat. That's what happens if we see the world and if we see the grace of God, the kindness and mercy of God as something that there's not enough of, then necessarily what you will do is begin to push people to the margins. Because in order for you to get it, what you need, right? We saw that what's good is longing for connection, social connection. We want that. We want love, we want value, we want dignity. And so what we start doing is, in order for me to get this, I've got to distinguish myself from other people. And so there have got to be people outside the circle if there are going to be people inside the circle. So a scarcity mentality leads to our marginalization. Here's the third one that I'll point out. It's the status quo. So look at verse 6 of chapter 3. It reads... The woman saw that the tree was good, for good, uh, was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate. And here's the part I want to point out. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. When you read this, do you ask the question, why does Adam not confront the serpent? Why, why does he not just step in and say, no, 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 you, what you're saying is not true. That is not the God that we know, right? And that is not what he said to us. Like, why doesn't Adam stop this? Why does he let this continue? Well, well, well probably because he, he kind of is intrigued by what the serpent has to say, right? We have to at least imply that, like, he's listening. It says he was right there. And then when Eve gives him the fruit. It's not like he's like, no, 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 God told us not to eat that. No, he takes it and he eats it. So he is comfortable with what's going on. So, so why does marginalization happen? Well, I think if we're honest, and I know that we don't want to admit this, but I think if we're honest, it's because sometimes marginalization is not so bad for people that are inside the circle. Right? We're actually comfortable with it. Right? It, it kind of brings us some benefit at times. And so marginalization happens because of the status quo and our desire to preserve the status quo. Or at the very least, we don't really want to be made uncomfortable by having to deal with people on the margins. So spiritual power, scarcity mentality, status quo. That's why marginalization happens. All right, moving on. We got just a few minutes left. So let's hit really quick. How do we tend to respond to the marginalized? There are two reasons, um, at least two reasons that I'll point out. Uh, We tend to respond to the marginalized with hostility or with hospitality. Those Those are really the big, broad categories, and those are the options. We either respond to the marginalized with hostility or hospitality. So hostility, let's talk about that. I think within that are at least three things. Uh, The first one is hate. That one's kind of uh, easy for us to see, 
right? Obviously, hostility tends to, we, we tend to associate that with hate in our minds. That's where you're kind of like, people on the margins are there because of the decisions that they made, right? They're there because they're lazy or because they, they, we, they had the same opportunities we had, but they just didn't do anything with it. So they're there because they've made choices, they've wasted their lives, they've squandered their opportunities, they deserve what they get. Hate. Now, if you're sitting in this room, you probably wouldn't identify with that. But you may identify with a couple of the other ones that would fall in hate and you, in hostility, and you may not even have recognized that it is hostility. So the second one is not hate, but it's indifference. So there is a Holocaust survivor and writer. His name is Elie Wiesel. He said, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. So... I will submit to you that when you see people in the margins and you do nothing, that's hostility. So hate, indifference, and then assimilation is actually another form of hostility. So that's where you say, hey, people in the margins, I'm okay with them coming in so long as they get rid of all their uniqueness, right? As long as they will become like me and my group, then, then they, can, they can come into the circle, right? They can come close. But, but here's why that's so hostile. It's because when you require that people lose the uniqueness, and, and, and hear me, not all uniqueness is inherently good. So I'm not just saying that any kind of uniqueness, but particularly when you require people to lose the uniqueness that was a part of God's good design. That is hostility, you were saying you must destroy something that God said was good in order for you to receive the benefits that you inherently deserve because you were created in the image of God. That is hostility. So whether it's hate or just indifference or assimilation, those are all manifestations of hostility. The opposite of that is hospitality. Instead of pushing people to the margins, it's welcoming the marginalized into the family of God, which is the way of Jesus, which brings us to this last question. How does God respond to the marginalized? So turn with me to the book of Ephesians, and we'll end here and then jump into this panel. So in Ephesians, let's look at a few verses that are going to help us answer this question of how God responds to the marginalized. Um, and we're going to primarily be in Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going to start in verse 12. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. So this is Paul reminding the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, but who have believed on the Messiah Jesus, that, hey, you know that you can identify with the marginalized. You realize that, right? Because you were once marginalized from Israel and the hope of the Messiah. And so here's the, first, here's the first thing that God does in response to the marginalized. He reminds those who are inside the family of God that you were once the marginalized. So when you ask the question, why should I care about this? Why should I have a heart for marginalization? Because if God didn't have a heart for the marginalized, none of us would be followers of Jesus and be inside his family. So we, we have to have this heart because that's what it means to be a part of the family of God. God desires people to be a part of his family from every nation, tribe, and tongue, which brings us to verses 13 through 15, where Paul continues, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made no effect of the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. God's ultimate solution to marginalization was not assimilation, it was hospitality. Now, it may be confusing to you. You read this and you say, wait a minute, Julius, it says he created one new man. That sounds like assimilation to me. It sounds like they're losing their uniqueness and all becoming one thing. We know that's not what it means because of what we read in Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember verse 24? It said, so therefore a man leaves his, his father and mother and he becomes one with his wife. 
So the question becomes, is that verse saying that when a man marries a woman like I have, that we lose our uniqueness? I can confidently say to you that the day I married my wife, I did not stop becoming a man. And she most certainly did not stop becoming a woman for reasons that I cannot recount with you at this time. But it's clear that that's not what it's saying. So if that verse was saying they could become one without losing their uniqueness, this verse also means that coming into the family of God does not require us to lose our uniqueness. It causes us to start emphasizing the right thing, which is our unity, not our uniqueness. The family of God, then, hospitality is when we emphasize a unity that is enhanced by our uniqueness, not threatened by it. That is how God responds to the marginalized. And then we end here, verses 16 and 17, where it says, he did so, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So Jesus abolished the hostility that existed between those near and far. In fact, he did that by dying between the two. I mean, what a beautiful picture of hospitality. Jesus didn't just talk about welcoming in. He went and he died so that people could be brought in. So here's because the, the title of this is Fighting for the Marginalized and the Unreached. And up to this point, you may be wondering, like, what's the connection between the marginalized and the unreached? Well, here it is. If Jesus proclaimed the good news to those who were far away, well, let's, let's say it this way. If Jesus didn't proclaim the good news to those who were far away, you and I would be the unreached. You realize that, right? We're not a part of the house of Israel. So Jesus proclaiming the good news to those who were far away meant that the gospel went to people who were then unreached. There is not a group of people more marginalized from the family of God than those who don't even know the family of God exists, who've never even heard the gospel message who perhaps have never even heard the name of Jesus. That is profound marginalization. And how wicked must it be of the family of God to not care about that? When their very Jesus said, I proclaim the good news to those who are far away and to those who are near and died so that they might be family together. So, if Jesus proclaimed the good news to those who are far away, how can we, following the way of Jesus, not do the same? That is fighting for the marginalized and the unreached. So I want to end with this. I don't know if you've seen this movie, and I'm not necessarily recommending that you watch it. It's a movie called 10,000 BC. Uh, it's not actually, it's a very forgettable movie, actually. So, like, it's not even great, but it's got one of the best quotes I've ever heard. It's always stuck with me, even though I've seen this movie years and years ago. So I want to read this quote to you, make this last point, and then invite Jordan and Rima to come join me on the stage. So here's the quote. A good man draws a circle around himself and cares for those within, his woman, his children. Other men draw a larger circle and bring within their brothers and sisters. But some men have a greater destiny. They must draw around themselves a circle that includes many, many more. And this guy who's saying this to this, this, this young man, he says, your father was one of those men. You must decide for yourself whether you are as well. I didn't think there was any better way to end this talk to you than to say your father was one of those men who didn't just draw a circle around those close and near. He drew a circle around the whole world. When Jesus came in the incarnation, that is him drawing a circle around the whole earth. And he welcomes people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We know that because we read to the end of the story, and John says, I see it, people from every nation. I hear it in every language. That's the family of God. That is where God is going, whether you get on or not. But if 
we're going to be people who follow the way of Jesus, then we also must decide for ourselves whether we will be one of these men, one of these women, or not. So, all right, Jordan, Rima. Oh, I could listen to Julius all day. Anybody else? <laughs> uh, well, great. Well, thanks, Julius, for bringing the word and um, just breaking it down for us. So I'm, I'm just going to ask a real quick question. Uh, that way you guys can get to know us a little bit as well as we uh, just answer a few questions. Um, so we're just going to introduce ourselves, our position at Summit, um, and then... This third question, I didn't tell him what it was. So last weekend, we were supposed to be here and we weren't because of snow uh, on the ground. Not too much, but, you know, a couple inches. So my question is, what were you doing this time last weekend? Give us a little glimpse into that. But I'll I'll start off, let them think a little bit. So my name is Jordan Komen. I am the Go Now director here for uh, Summit College. And that just means that I help mobilize students in the summer doing city projects, Second City, City Life, um, but also help us just think about sending students overseas for two years through journeymen or, um, or coming on a college staff team or going with a church plant. Uh, and then last weekend, what I was doing at this time was trying to hold off my three little girls from going outside all morning. They woke up at 7 a.m. and they said, snow, and I said, 19 degrees, uh, wait. And so uh, I got them to wait till 1130, believe it or not. So that was amazing. So we were strapping it up, ready to go outside and play in the snow last weekend at this time. Cool. Yeah. Uh, my name is Julius Tennell II. Uh, I am on staff with the missions team here overseeing long-term missionary training and assessment. Um, what was I doing? I'm, I was rolling around in the floor with my two-year-old son because he uh, is at the age where he's fascinated by snow, but um, he doesn't yet realize how miserable it is to be absolutely frozen. And so I get the privilege of not introducing him to that yet. So we were inside enjoying the warmth and rolling around in the floor while uh, my wife was enjoying some rest. (laughs) Hey, everyone. My name is Rima Nasrallah. I serve at our Chapel Hill campus as the director of mobilization and operations. That's really just a fancy way of just saying I'm trying to send as many people as possible while still trying to keep things running here. Um, What was I doing last week? Okay, so I, I hate the cold. I grew up in the Midwest. I had so much snow growing up, so I'm pretty snowed out. Um, So I stayed inside by either the actual fire or the Netflix fireplace um, and played games, watched movies, um, and yeah, just enjoyed enjoyed time inside. Nice. I'm from the Midwest too, but I actually like the snow. So there's that. Uh, Well, hey, I I figured it would just be good to start off with uh, just kind of what are some different responses that we might hear from college students about what Julius just shared. Um, And we're going to start there. We're just going to see where that takes us. Yeah, so I, as I was thinking about kind of what Julius was sharing and some of the conversations that I've had with a number of different college students in regards to the conversation, it's it's very similar to the justice conversation. Um, It's all kind of tied together. And so when we're talking with students about that, um, there are a couple of things that have come up a few times. Um, one of them is, especially for those here in Summit College, that you know they, they feel so busy and so overwhelmed with everything that's within the structure that they're already having to do. They've got D group, they've got family groups, they've got student leader training, they've got family group leader training, they've got BGS, they've got all of these different things. And so the question then becomes, are, are we just asking you to do one more thing in addition to what it is that you're doing? So that's a question that comes up a lot. Um, I think another question is, even within the structure, uh, a lot of times family groups are structured around either a location or within a a place. Um, And so students find themselves around people who are just like them all the time. And so how, how would you get out of this kind of bubble that you're in if you're already so overwhelmed with what you're doing and everybody is just like you in what you're doing? How do you break outside of that? Um, Where do you even begin? And then the third thing that I think comes up a lot is, um, you know, our, our family group is struggling. You know, we've got conflict inside, um, inside the family group. We've got people who are really apathetic at best, if not hostile at worst, anything that we're asking of them to do. So is it even worth us trying to pursue people on the outside if we can't even 
keep things together on the inside. So what do we do there? So those are kind of the three things that I thought about. Um, and I'd love to hear your response. We can all chime in. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the, that first group, the, the type A people in the room who are listening to this and like, oh, no, I'm not a Christian. I need to go do more stuff. I'm talking to you, okay? Um, I, I think what we don't want you to hear is that fighting for the marginalized and the unreached is another thing that you need to have in your Christian tool belt or God is displeased with you. That, that would be to miss um, the ethos of, of what we're trying to share and what we believe that the scriptures teach. So instead of that, what I, what I would say to, to that group of people, um, to, to you as you're sitting here, is instead I would want you to see this as, so I've never had a conversation with somebody who said they were like really busy and they said to me, Julius, you don't understand that in addition to like school that I'm working on and you know my family life and trying to maintain a social life, in addition to all those things, I also have to breathe. Like, no one's ever said that to me, right? Because breathing is just like a part of you. Like, you just, you have to do it. You, it's not like a thing that you think about, I need to do this. I sit in my phone, hey, remember to breathe. Like, so the question is, is the way of Jesus something that we do or is it like who we are? Because I just think if, if we're following Jesus, like we're following Jesus into fighting for the marginalized and the unreached, it's just like a part of who we are. It's not just thinking about what we do. So I would say kind of a, a major way to think about that when you think about hospitality is it's not so much adding new things to your schedule. It's about who you do the things you already do with. So it's adding people to the things that you do, and particularly those who are on the margin. So I think that's the way you begin to think about it, not like you leave from here and think, oh, here are the, the million things that I need to add to my schedule, but just think about how to be intentional with moving towards people that maybe aren't in your natural sphere, but you are choosing to, to move to those margins and bring them into the things that you're, you're already doing. Yeah, I think that, I think that, kind of answers the second one as well. Like if you find that the people that you're around are all like you, then it's going to actually take you doing something different in order for things to change. And what that might be is where you go to do the things that you're already doing. So there's a, there's a principle that I heard one time, Daniel Simmons had shared it with us, but I actually think it comes from the book um, Saturate. It's called uh, Intersection, Not Addition. And so intersection means figure out what you're already doing and intersect those things with people instead of just trying to add more to your plate. So if you find that the people around you are all just like you, go and go somewhere different and do the things. Go eat somewhere different. Go walk somewhere different. Go have dinner in a different location. Like change up the things that you already have to do. You have to eat. You have to walk to class likely or drive to class. Or if you drive, maybe you decide to walk instead. Um, what are the things that you are doing that you could change slightly in order to help you intersect with people who are not like you? Yeah, that's good. I, I would say as well, just thinking about the first question, which leads to the second one, um, would just be like, sometimes we hear stuff like this and we really want to do something grand. <laughs> we want to go from like, oh man, I don't think I fight for the marginalized or the unreached to like, being a hardcore missionary in an unreached place where no one's ever heard the gospel. And it's like, and so if I got to do that, um, but you don't go from that, from A to Z like, like that. Um, and so I often just, it's often just a shift in your thinking. You've been saved. You've been brought from death to life. <laughs> and now you're kind of fine tuning, following a compass, you know, a compass kind of moves um, or, 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 you know, ships sailing. If they're one degree off and they're going a thousand mile journey, they're going to be way off course. But if you get that one degree altered, the correct direction, following the Holy Spirit, you're going to uh, like live a lifetime fighting for the marginalized and unreached. And as opportunities arise, you will in faith and in obedience, <laughs> follow what God is asking you to do. So like for me, for example, it actually looked like saying, God, you are worthy when I was a uh, rising junior in college of raising all this money and doing a summer project. And uh, I don't know what exactly you're going to do with that, but I'm going to do it. That's where he implanted the idea of like missions in my mind was that, was that summer. 
Um, that led us to going overseas, thinking this is what we're going to do in 2014. Whole family, took my two girls at the time, now I have three, but took them over there. This is what we're going to do. We're going to be missionaries. Um, God, that's actually not what God had for me. He actually had a, a story of, long story, but here, here I am, uh, and I'm trying to help mobilize and send people to the mission field. Um, if, if, if all of these like one degree shifts of thinking didn't happen, it wouldn't have led me to the Summit Church, which actually was a huge part of Lee and I's heart softening and growing for uh, in any sort of child who is, is in harm's way or what, what we would classify as uh, fatherless or, or orphaned. Um, it was just a one degree shift after a sermon. And then eventually it was, uh, oh, I met a friend and they adopted. And then, oh, we met more friends and they've adopted first. And then here we are. And now we have a, a almost eight-year-old adopted daughter, right? Like it's these one degree shifts that you're, this compass that you're guiding, following the Holy Spirit. And, and God will present the opportunity for you to fight for the marginalized in some of those ways that like flagship ways that we sometimes try to jump to. Um, I would just encourage you to like slow down. Uh, and not try to jump on in without having that heart shift first because um, you can sometimes do more harm than good if that's the case. So that would be my response to those first two questions, at least. I forget what the third one was. Third one is, is my family group's a mess. Oh. <laughs> should I, how can I even, like, should I even consider stepping outside of that if our family group isn't healthy? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think... We have to be careful how we communicate this because, you know, we really do, we are concerned for everyone's health. And so we, we don't want to make it seem like, you know, all we're concerned with is multiplication without concern for, you know, soul formation. Like, they're both really, really important. So, so I hear me say that, like, we... We want you to, it's just even that you would have that response means that you are being shaped by God's heart, that you're concerned for people's health. Like, that's really important. The other side of that, and maybe where we kind of need to be pushed a little bit, is that they're never really become, I'm a small group leader right now. <laughs> there never really comes a time when everything is going the way that I want it to go. <laughs> Or, or, you know, it's like really the whole Christian life is cycles of health and unhealth. Like, I think that is what it means to be sanctified, right? We're just, we're, like God is working with us and meeting us where we're at. So if you're waiting for a time where you feel like things are really good and that's when you're going to start going to the marginalized, that time is just never going to come. So I think as you're concerned with health, I think what you want to realize is that sometimes some of the best ways that God actually brings the, the healing and the health that you're looking for is as you do what he says. Like as you follow the way of Jesus, that's where healing happens. So it doesn't happen from retreating from what God said. It happens from following him into, even when you say, like, I'm feeling weak. I don't feel like I have the strength to do this. I don't even know how we do basic things as a community, let alone fight for the marginalized, well, that's the place where you are now, right, most equipped to see the power of God rest on you, which is what Paul says. So I boast all the more in my weakness because there, the, the power of God is made perfect. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that's how I would begin to navigate that. No, that's good. I was I actually was going to transition. Oh, can I just say one yep. really quick thing? Okay, so I... With Julius, I think that both can happen simultaneously, and they, in fact, they need to happen simultaneously. Um, but I think if we're, you know, we're talking about the way of Jesus, and if we look at even the way that Jesus modeled that for us, when he called his disciples, he didn't just call them all, and then they all stay in a little huddle and just like chill for a little while and build each other up and all of that, and then eventually go out. What he did was he called them as he was going, and they were involved in the going with him. And that, that is how they learned how to follow him. And that's how health came, and that's how spiritual formation came. So I think it's important that it, it's both, one not to the neglect of the other. Yeah, and the disciples were a hot mess, in case you didn't realize. Like, Peter, that's, he's one of my favorite, um, because he's just so, like, out there. 
Like one moment, he's like killing it, right? Based on the profession of your faith, I'm going to build my church. Jesus says to him, like he's killing it. And the next moment, Peter, you are Satan. Get behind me. You don't understand the things of God. Like I just, I love that. Like this is one of Jesus's closest friends. So like if he can be this hot mess and journey with Jesus, deny him three times, right? But then come back and become like really a rock of the church. I think our jacked up family groups can also follow in the way of Jesus, like if Peter can do it, so. I love that. The God, Romans 8, 1, right? Don't we want to show everyone that that's what we build our faith and foundation on? Um, that's great. Well, we heard them mention the way of Jesus several times, so I thought this would be a great follow-up question. How has the way of Jesus personally impacted you? Yeah, I'm, I just, I love Jesus, I just, like, he ch- he's changed my life. Like, I, if you could see where I was when Jesus found me and how he has just completely transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son and how he continues to patiently bear with me. Um, so it just, it starts for me with, I love Jesus and I want to be about what Jesus is about because as I'm being about what he's about, I can become more like him. And so then as I read through the Bible about this Jesus that I love and I observe the way the scriptures talk about him, I always see him moving towards people in the margins. Like he's just always, and he's getting ridiculed for it oftentimes. Like eating with the tax collectors and the religious leaders are like, why are you doing that? They are the worst. And Jesus is like, I came for them. Like those not who are well, but those who are sick, that's who I came for, not the righteous, but the unrighteous. So when I, when I just observe this Jesus that I love, this is just who he is. And so I'm like, how can that not? That's, that is the impact on me. It's, it's, I, wanna, I wanna be that kind of person where, where it is both, where we're having this conversation. Um, I, I was talking to somebody on our missions team and I was telling her like, I want this tension that Jesus seems to have where people are comfortable coming and just being a mess, right? They don't try to hide that. And at the same time, they don't stay where they are. And I just think that's a, that's a really hard tension. But the way you balance that tension is love, which is what Jesus does, right? He's, people are so assured that when they come to him, he's not just going to destroy them and cast them out, that there's space for them to be their hot mess self and at the same time experience transformation and the journey of healing and salvation and I just I want to be that kind of person I I want people in our homes in my home seeing me love my wife and like apologize to my son so that they can have that journey that I'm on and I can invite them into it so that's yeah that's where I'm at uh has anybody seen the chosen yes I love that See your hands. Okay, I will confess, I was a little bit of a hater at first. Um, not because I had seen it, but just because I was for sure that it was going to be another one of those really cheesy shows about Jesus, and that it was just going to make me mad at the way that he was portrayed and the way that the disciples were portrayed. I could not have been more wrong. Y'all, those of you who have seen it, you know. Those of you who haven't, immediately go and watch it. Um, I cleared through both seasons in a very short period of time. Um, But here's what it did for me. It took the things that I had read in scripture about Jesus and it put them in, in, I don't know, it came alive. And what I saw, and I think what impact, and there's so many things we could say, but the things that I saw and the things that, when we're talking about the way of Jesus, what has impacted me so much is the way that Jesus viewed people. Okay, so his heart and disposition towards them and the way that he pursued them. So the way that he viewed them and pursued them, the way that he viewed them, um, you know, we, we hear story after story about how he looked on people with compassion and mercy. He saw them as sheep who were harassed and without a shepherd. He was compassionate and merciful towards them, right? Um, so, but the second thing was that he pursued them. He went after them. So, you know, with, with where things were in the temple, God's special presence dwelled in the temple, And there were a lot of people who were cut off from that presence. They couldn't actually even get to him because of different regulations. And so Jesus himself, who was God, went to them. Like when they couldn't access the special presence of God, he went to them. Um, And that was just so, 
I don't know, it came alive to me. The other thing that was, was really um, a stark contrast to me when I saw in the chosen, again, in the chosen, um, I saw this compassionate, gracious man who was moving towards the people on the margins. And then you see the Pharisees and you see them who are dressed in these, like in their robes and how they are so calloused and hard-hearted towards those same people on the margins that when Jesus would heal somebody on the Sabbath, they didn't care. They didn't care that a man who had been lame for 37 years, who was getting up and walking, they didn't care that he was walking. They cared that it happened on the Sabbath, how callous their hearts had been towards the people that God had told them to love. Like that came alive to me. And then it prompted the question of what do we look like? Who do we look like? Who do I look like? And just thinking about the, the way that we are living our lives, do, do we look more like the Pharisees who are content to be separate from those who are hurting and apart from them and maintaining the status quo and maintaining whatever it is that we're trying to hold on to? Or are we like Jesus who are running towards the darkness and towards the marginalized and towards the people who are literally cut off from the presence of God? Um, and kind of thinking about it in two different ways, right? We think about like locally cut off, but even what Julius mentioned, those who are, who are living in unreached people groups, who there, there is no more, marginaliz- more marginalization than somebody who has no access to the gospel. Um, so I really had to be honest with myself, and I would encourage you to even think about that as well. Like, who, who do you look like? Do you look like Jesus in the way that you love and care? Is your disposition and your heart towards them one of compassion and mercy? Because that's what we received. That was his disposition towards us, and he pursued us. So is your heart disposition in that way towards other people out of that mercy and compassion that you've received? And does that then cause you to go and pursue those people on the margins? Amen. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to answer this question. We're going to keep moving uh, to help just show or shape how uh, many of your church plant strategies are similar. You guys were, uh, a lot of you came from Summit College or have, have adopted some of our own strategies. I just wanted you to see how a lot of what we talked about today fits within a little bit of the model that we already have. So we our, our number one relational evangelism model that we have is called FISH. Um, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's build a friendship, initiate to spiritual, share the gospel, help them make a decision. So you're not, they don't have to like accept Christ, but you're helping them make a decision to read the Bible, hang out with you or pursue, pursue God, like answering and seeing who God is in some way. Um, and so I just wanted us to talk about how does what we talked about today, what Julius mentioned in the beginning, uh, how, how does that, how does actually fish model that? as well. Yeah, so um, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to start in Genesis with God's design, because just seeing that God was the one who said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So I really love that that kind of fish starts with friendship. Um, and something I'm really passionate about is that we don't see friendship as a means to the end of evangelism. Um, makes it where people are kind of projects that we just want to get to a certain place. And so I'm going to become friends with you because I have this real agenda that I'm trying. And so I, one of the reasons I start with, you know, Genesis chapter two, not good for you to be alone is to, to see that, you know, people have this core need, which is connection. We were created for that. So what, what you're doing in friendship is you are imaging God you know, doing what people were created for, right? You, as you are pursuing friendship, <laughs> on the other side of that is you're also following the way of Jesus. Jesus was a really good friend, right? And this, this is the context for all of the transformation to happen was because Jesus put himself in situations where he became friends with people who, who were not like him, who were on the margins. And, and so I, I think we don't want to see it as a means to the end of evangelism, and we don't want to see friendship as like, this is what qualifies me to be able to share the gospel with somebody. Like, friendship is how I earn the right. To sh- no, no, no. You have the right to share the gospel because Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, so therefore go make disciples. You do not need any other qualifier in that Jesus has sent you. That's your right. 
So then I think what we want to see is that friendship and evangelism come from the same well, and that well is the love of Jesus, right? And so I actually, I think the starting place for us is that our friendship with Jesus is what leads the way to fish. Like, it is our friendshiping with God that leads us to build friendships with others and to share the gospel the whole way, um, you know, and to to help people take a step. All of that's coming from the same place. It's, it's an overflow of our friendship with God. Um, so I think I love fish. I use it all the time. I think you just want to be really clear on why you're doing what you're doing, that it's, it is a result of your friendship with God and that that friendship is necessarily pushing you out to invite other people to experience what you've experienced. And that's, that's the place where fish, fish lives. That's great. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was just thinking about me personally uh, in, the, in the context of, you know, fighting for the unreached, fighting for the marginalized. Um, what are some of the things God has taught me along the way that I think would be helpful for you all? Because it's like, well, building a friendship with someone who is marginalized or unreached means they're probably not like me, right? Uh, there's going to be some sort of difference there. And that can be confusing. It can be like, sometimes my heart is going like this, right? I'm like, oh, what do I say? What do I do? I don't know. Um, and so I just wanted to share some things that I've learned over the years from reading books or experience or whatever. And I hope it's helpful. I pray uh, that the Spirit will use this. Um, and I'm going to use it in context. I'm going to share some examples, specifically that God has just allowed and brought clearly to my doorstep, just people who are in the LGBTQIA community, um, which from my context, y'all, I grew up as a Kansas farm boy. So I grew up, you could say, in a very hostile environment towards that community and a very, uh, yeah, I was definitely probably myself extremely hostile growing up to that environment. Um, So some of my examples, I think I'll just pull from there just to be helpful. So I'm just going to give you three practical things that I think the Lord's taught me in befriending someone who is, you know, completely different than me. That might be helpful for you. I I would say one, this God taught me, I I often overthink and overcomplicate the friendship because there are these very overt differences and I, I really think God wants you not to do that. <laughs> this is a person created in the image of God, and there's probably way more you have in common than you have that's different, similar to what Julius was talking about. Like, what, what do we have that unifies us instead of what, what do we have that makes us separate or unique? Um, so that, that was th- number one. And for me, that was really hard growing up in that hostile environment uh, with people who identify uh, in the LGBTQIA community. And so, for example, I had a non-binary student for three years when I was a teacher at Jordan High School. Um, and when Spencer told me that, at first I was like, I had to like Google it. So this is back in 2014. <laughs> first I was like, I don't even know what that means. Um, and so with Spencer, it took me time uh, of just listening, asking questions, genuinely trying to understand uh, the experience, right? Because um, I was clueless. And so don't overthink it, don't overcomplicate it. Second, uh, I would just say um, acceptance. And I get this from um, uh, a really great book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosario Butterfield. I would recommend it. Um, it's all about hospitality. So The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, she says this, she says, acceptance of who someone is is not approval of all of their life's decisions. Um, I'll say it one more time. Acceptance of who someone is is not approval of all their life's decisions. And so for me, I had to wrestle. I was like, so do I call Spencer they and there? Or what do I do? I had to like internally wrestle there. And I think there's some gray area there. I would just encourage you all, if you're uncomfortable using pronouns that they're asking, use their name, okay? Respect their personhood and their image bearing. Um, I don't think, I think it's hostile to be like, I'm not calling you that. I don't believe that. Um, so hospitality, a hospital, generous heart would be one that, that respects their personhood. Um, and you just are very upfront with, with uh, them about this. Um, and honestly, it actually eventually led to Spencer coming to me and talking to me about how his parents are Christians and they're so confused and they're so, there's so much hurt and pain after... Um, Spencer came, came out and, and talked about this, and uh, I became a Christian who would listen 
and would talk to him and would share my belief about him there. And he gave, he gave me a lot of grace when I used the wrong pronoun <laughs> uh, about just, just who, who God made, uh, made Spencer to be. And, um, and it really allowed me to share the gospel in a way that's actually believable and accessible to that person, if that makes sense. And then the third one, I'll just leave you with this. Um, respect the reality of their lives and households. Again, Rosaria says that. Respect the lives of the reality and households. Um, their, their experience is very real. Uh, just talk to anyone, any of your friends who struggle with SSA or come out of this community and now are Christ followers. Their experience is very real. It's not a delusion. Uh, and we need to respect that. And often it just means being slow to speak, quick to listen. And here's the deal. Those three principles, um, those three principles apply to an unreached people group. <laughs> they apply to a person in the LGBTQ community. They apply to someone who's in a different ethnic uh, race that lives right here in the same city as you. Um, and again, that's just don't overthink it. Don't overcomplicate it. Befriend them uh, to you, approval of uh, is not the same as acceptance. Okay. And um, respecting their lives and their, their household. Um, I probably talked too long. We're running out of time. So I have one more question and I want this to be, and right after this, we're going to lunch, right? But there's plenty. It's not going to run away. Uh, that I just wanted to ask like practically, how has fighting for the marginalized and unreached played out in your life? Um, so give us, you know, just a brief overview of what that's looked like for you. Yeah. Um, two things real quick. So one is that uh, most of my processing of fighting for the marginalized happens within the context of our small group. Uh, I think that uh, hospitality is something for the family of God to do together, not for individuals. Um, and so that's I, we are uh, trying to start these uh, Sunday lunches that are geared towards um, r- really welcoming in people on the margins, a, a safe place for them to come. And one, see, you know, Jesus said, people will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. So we want to invite people into the way that we love one another. And then also as an extension, a way to love, to love them. Um, and so, man, we, we've, we've just been toying around with how do we do that? Um, and it's, I just want to be upfront with you. Like it's really complicated, especially in a pandemic to try to figure out how to do this and how to do it well. Cause people have varying levels of comfort with, you know, with, with people, coming in, particularly people they don't know, and um, masks, not masks, vaccinated, unvaccinated, right? It's like really complicated, but that, that shouldn't keep us from figuring out, well, what, what do we do, right? Um, and so we've just been wrestling through that and, and trying to get these Sunday lunches started as a, as a way of just going into the neighborhoods where we have these lunches and just meeting people and inviting them in. Um, to, to share a meal with us. And then, you know, the second thing for me was that my wife and I, we, we were reading the scriptures and came across again, Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. And um, at, at some point reading that just kind of sparked in us, like that is enough of a call for us to go. Because I think before that we had been like, God, if you want us to go overseas, we're willing to go. You just kind of have to spell it out. Right, like you're gonna have to knock us off our donkey, like you did, Paul, and tell us that this is what you want us to do, and we will gladly do it. Uh, but it, it just at some level, it was like, but but Jesus has already done that. He said, "Go make disciples of all nations," and there are people who don't know the gospel, and so and have access to it. And so, yeah. So for for me and my wife, that was choosing to pick up our lives uh, about four years ago and move to Johannesburg, South Africa, which. Um, 50% of people in Johannesburg are not from South Africa, so they come from all of these unreached places and settled there. And so um, that that decision to go and live there for three years and be a part of God's work of taking the gospel to people without access was was a, a part of us responding to what we were seeing in the scriptures in the way of Jesus. Yeah, I think for me it's looked different at different stages in my life. Um, when I was in college, this conversation was not happening. That Nobody was talking about marginalization. Nobody was really even talking about unreached people groups. And, uh, and yet God was really gracious to me and um, allowed me to start the process to go as a journeyman. And so I, I went as a journeyman straight out of college and learned 
so much in that process. And it was during that time that God began to turn my heart towards people who were living in unreached people groups. And so when I came back, I came back with the purpose of trying to go back overseas. Um, And I had had some physical injuries and so haven't been able to pursue living back overseas. But um, a few years after being here, uh, my roommates and I had found out that there was a large South Asian population living in Morrisville. And so we had flexibility. So we decided we're just going to go and move to an apartment complex in Morrisville to live among a people who came from an unreached people groups, um, from unreached people groups. So we lived there for five years and built friendships and shared the gospel and shared stories um, about Jesus and planted our lives there. And then when it came time for me to shift over to Chapel Hill and take this position, now what I get to do is I, I pray a lot using a lot of different resources, whether it is the Joshua Project, Unreached of the Day, that comes up on my phone every morning, whether it is Pray for the World, it's a book that you can buy that literally goes through every single nation. Um, we've got missionary prayer cards in our missionary prayer book. Um, any of those things will help you in you know, being able to cultivate God's heart for the nations, but really for even just the marginalized here, for those who are near and for those who are far. So, so praying is, is a big part of um, what happens now. And having conversations with college students and people in, in our campus um, trying to advocate for those who are marginalized both near and far away. Those, those are the kind of conversations that I want to continue to put before anybody that I talk to in that like this is what our lives are to be about. And so if that's what our lives are to be about, then there will be so much joy that comes from pursuing God in that. It's not going to be easy, and there's, it, it will require a sacrifice. You're, it's going to cost you something. You got to know that it's going to cost you something. But the cost is worth it. It's worth pursuing God into the darkness. It's worth pursuing people in the way that, in the same way that God pursued you. Um, so I'd say those are probably the the main ways that are happening right now. That's great. Can you all thank them for joining us today?